Hello and welcome to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, we're going to be chatting about the four-day week, persuasion, and we're going to profile Kim Scott, whose book we talked about last week, but her profile intrigues us so much, we thought we'd revisit her in person. So four-day week, Heather, what does it mean to you? Well, I used to work a four-day week, and it was the best time ever. It was when I was employed. Um, I worked, yeah, I worked, I had a Friday off, and at the time, my husband was contracting, and so he worked a four-day week as well. It was like the perfect balance. Can I just ask, did you have the same day off in the week, or was it perfect because you had different days off? Well, to be fair, it was around the time that we were, were we were pre- preparing to get married. So we both had the Friday off. We were doing it now, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'd have different days. I don't know. I, I get what you mean. And I tend to <laughs> <But> agree. It, <laughs> it was a really good balance. Yeah. Have you ever worked a four-day week? I've not worked a four-day week. I've worked a three-day week. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and I've, I've worked because I've been self-employed um, for many years. Um, I, I've worked anything between a one-day week and a seven-day week. <laughs> um, but working for an employer on a four-day week, the reason we're looking at this again, because we have talked about this before, haven't we? The reason we're looking at it again is because it popped up on um, the BBC website at the end of last year. And the headline was four day week means I don't waste holidays on chores. And that's so true, isn't it? It's a really good reason um, to, to have an extra day to your weekend. And that was the thing that I found was that um, and, and of course, I was working a four day week. I wasn't working compressed hours. I wasn't doing a full week over four days I was working a four-day week now I was salaried so it wasn't like I was being paid by the hour but um it meant that you basically you could have a day to do your chores a day to do your duty things like you know family you know elderly parents etc and a day to do today a day to do what you wanted to do (laughs) was really nice which sometimes would be absolutely nothing yeah just an afternoon of doing what you want to do would be pretty good at the moment. Well, the first person they talk about in um, in this article actually did squeeze all of his hours into the four days. So that's a bit different, isn't it? Um, mm. So he just lengthened his four days. But um, some of the positives he was talking about there is um, obviously his commute is reduced by a whole day a week. And even yeah. then, if you're working from home, your commute is reduced anyway. So you can do those longer days working from home. It's a bit yeah. different if you're working a four day week and they're getting a reduction in pay. That's something you need to balance, isn't it? Yeah. And, but I think I think that that's as much to do with you know, if you if somebody offers you four-day week that's uh, you know and you're looking for another job that's one thing but that in this article you know they do talk about organizations that have and are introducing a new policy where we're going to do a four-day week and um, some are doing it as a pilot uh, I've, I've found some other articles uh, on the BBC where um, Unilever with, with, started last year 2020 testing a four-day week, no reduced um, money, uh, just reduced hours. 
and they're going to trial it and then see whether they roll that out on a on a global scale. So you've got to you can't just leap into it. I think it's something that you've got to think about as an employee and as an as an employer. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of campaigns that are encouraging um, reduced working weeks. Um, I've been aware of a few on Twitter for a while now, but um, one is quoted in this article on the BBC. Um, It's called the Four Day Week campaign. They're on Twitter, um, Four Day uh, Unschool Week. But there's also a specific Welsh one as well, so Four Day Week Cymru and Four Day Week Global. And, and they're just really um, campaigning for the, the positive impact for both employee and employer. And they, they reckon that, you know, working the um, the longer weeks is just an out-of-date old way of working. Yeah, I think there are a few, um, there are a few schools of thought that think that it's a bad thing because of the reduction in money, that it's basically... Uh, a company's way of getting the same amount of work out of somebody but paying them 80% of their pay. So I think, you know, there is some, there is something around that that needs to be needs to be looked at. But um, I did find an article um, on changerecruitmentgroup.com and they were talking about the pros and cons of this, this model. Uh, and a really interesting statistic, they said that in the in 1890, the United States government estimated that a full-time employee within a manufacturing plant worked an average of 100 hours a week. Wow. And by the mid-20th century, manufacturing employees only worked 40 hours a week. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who have overtime and, and, you know, shifts and all sorts of things. But imagine working 100 hours a week. That that just blows your mind, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, it works. Just work. So, what about reduced hours? But um, okay. So the scenario is, I've been working with um, a colleague who's who's wanting to reduce hours, and it was suggested um, that they did four half days a week. Okay. But we were, and then we were discussing the pros and cons of doing four half days or just doing two full days. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? I think it's quite an interesting choice. Yeah, well, I suppose, well, for them, for their benefits, you know, if they're juggling around school, you know, kids and things like that, maybe um, that helps. But I suppose you, you, if I were working four half days, I think you would get more than two full days out of me in terms of output. Yeah, yeah. I I remember when I was um, doing... um, therapy sessions and that sort of it was evening work so I was doing the hypnotherapy and hypnobirthing classes in in evenings I used to find that I never really fully engaged in something during the day because I always felt like I was waiting to go to work mm, yes it it, yes. it wasn't it didn't really feel like it was my own time before I went to work it only felt like my own time after I'd finished work yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. If I were going to work half days, I would want to work the morning, not the afternoon. Yeah. Without a doubt. And I have done that in the past. So uh, one, one job I did was precisely to fit in with my kids um, and school and everything. So I'd, I'd, I'd go after I'd um, um, drop them off at school and I'd finish just after lunchtime so that I could get back home, do a bit of my self-employed work and then still be there to pick them up from school. 
that yeah. felt fine actually but yeah. flipping it the other way would yes I'd find that really difficult yeah going back to this article um there were some of the the positives they were talking about some of the positives increased productivity that's a little bit because you know people um people focus their attention because they haven't got five days to spread the work over effectively so there's less water cooler moments etc but they also mentioned that um it has an impact on the uh, gender pay gap because actually with a four-day week it potentially makes it easier for women who often have the childcare responsibilities to to flex their lives a little bit more which means that they um they then sit with more parity in terms of pay because the men are doing the same and I thought that that was quite an interesting they don't go into a lot of detail but I can yeah. see how that would start to level things out a little bit uh, because a lot of people who um, currently aren't working are women 89% are women and actually if they could work a four-day week it might encourage some of those to be able to take the job and that again, that would that would bring the pay gap down because yeah. they have more opportunity to work. Yeah, and and related to that, also in the article, they talk about um, a gentleman called Alan, who um, he lives in Switzerland. He's working an eighty percent job, and um, his wife is working a fifty to seventy percent job, and so he means he gets to spend the whole of Friday with the kids, and his wife is also um, working part time as well. So between them, they're getting a better work life balance because he can do some of the childcare while she's going to work. He said, uh, obviously, the downside is the salary, but the fact that his wife can now work as well means that it's okay because it, it balances out. Mm. One other element, of course, is, and we've talked about this a lot on the on um, on the podcast, is the the whole artificial intelligence. What that does in terms of um, the time commitment that people need to invest, and also customer satisfaction. So, I mean, you couldn't work a four day week in a shop unless you were going to close the shop one of the days. You, your customer might want you to be open and available and responding to calls and all of those types of things. So again, depending on the size of the business, can you utilize artificial intelligence? Can you have some people working Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, and some doing the Friday, you know, how does it all work? So it's quite complicated, but I'm all for it. And I think with COVID, more flexibility around what the working week looks like has really come to the fore hasn't it yeah and it's made a lot of things possible that wouldn't have been even considered before hey heather i'm going to do a really neat segue now wait for it <laughs> so if you want into work a four-day week and you need to put your business case to to um, a stakeholder you'll need to be persuasive Oh, see what I, I did, see there. did there. This leads us into a talk, a, a relatively new talk on TED, and it was um, from a talk in London, TEDx London. And oh, Heather, I'm so sorry. I'm always so bad at pronouncing names. I think this gentleman is called Nero Savanathan. 
Yeah, that's better than I could have done. I'm so sorry. I don't know if it's Nero or Nairo. It's spelt like Biro with an N. I have no idea. Okay. So he's done a really great little talk that Mm. we're going to discuss now called The Counterintuitive Way to Be More Persuasive. I loved it. What did you think, Heather? I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's only about 12 minutes long, something like that. Yeah, it's not a long commitment, is it? No. And it's it it's really interesting. And in fact, um, after after watching it, I then went on to research some other stuff that sort of come into my mind that he'd reminded me about. So and that's the sign of a really good TED talk. You don't just watch it and then go, OK, you go, oh, wow. OK, what about this? Yeah. Anyway, tell us, tell yeah, us well, explain. I, I was equally inspired to share it with colleagues. I was like, uh, you, you need to watch this. You need to understand this. Um, yeah. Essentially, he's talking about the best way to make a good point. And something I'd not heard of before is the dilution effect. And as is always the way with a lot of the TED Talks we watch, it, the, the science behind it is put forward so well that the examples that they use, it just really brings the um, the whole science and and the theory behind it to life apparently this dilution effect is what weakens even our strongest cases and um nero says that brevity is the true soul of persuasion now he should know he's an organizational psychologist he speaks writes and consults on how people attain maintain and lose influence through status and power he gave a really good example. This one stuck in my mind so much. And, and it's one of those classic visual aids that you can use as well because you can see it and you can almost, you almost know what his answer is going to be. So he talks about um, being on sale, a 24-piece crockery set at um, a certain price and a 40-piece dinner set with broken pieces. And what they what they said was in the research that they did that people were more prepared to pay a higher price for the twenty four piece dinner set than the forty piece dinner set, even though there were exactly the same number of unbroken pieces in the forty piece dinner set. That blew my mind. Yeah, and it was considerably lower, wasn't it? To, to get the yeah. forty piece with broken pieces was 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 it about half price. Of, yeah. of what they would have they, paid for the 24 piece. Yeah, they were sort of saying about 380 pounds or dollars, whatever it's 380 dollars versus for the 24 intact pieces, as you say, or the exact same um you know arrangement, except you because of the breakages, you'd you'd in fact you'd end up with the 24 pieces plus I think um a saucer, a cup and a saucer. Or, or, You'd end up with more unbroken yeah, pieces, yeah. wouldn't you? And Which people is... said they'd pay $190 for it. And he explained that as being a, a really good example of the dilution effect. Mm. And, you know, the fact that there was too much information in that 40-piece dinner set 
that people went for the 24 piece. And, yeah. you know, when you sometimes hear an explanation like that and it's just like a real light bulb going on in your head. And there have been a few of those over the years. Um, you know, so when, particularly when you hear about price points for things and when, when um, organisations are trying to sell digital versions and print versions and things like that and where you place it. But he says that this is the key to being an influential communicator. Did you feel, as, as you were hearing that story, could you visualise yourself in the shop in front of the box that says, you know, like in the crash damage element of the shop, you know, some damage, having just seen... I could, I could actually yeah. see myself when I've been in scenarios like that and you kind of go, ooh, oh, OK, I don't know. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's too... You're blinded by the package is yeah. damaged or... Yeah. Uh, but there's a, another example which I was really able to relate to because I'm in the middle of recruiting at the moment in, in my workplace was the Tim versus Tom. And and um, Tim and Tom have both got a quick profile and they reckon that because there's fewer bits of info about Tim, that people rated his intelligence higher than Tom's. And all Tom had was some extra information about his interests and his family life and you know what he got up to outside of um, his study. But the, these two on these profiles both studied for the same number of hours a week, but they rated that the one with the less information was more intelligent. And so the, um, Nero goes on to say that it's the extra information that's diluted the value and the weight of the information that they used to um to make these decisions and I was trying again like you're saying about the shop I was trying to imagine myself seeing a profile of two people and I wasn't totally sure about this one I was like would I would I do that what about you Heather did, did you agree with that one well I have to admit I, ha I did have to read not read I, I well I took I watched it and then I took a copy of the transcription and I reread that bit just to get it straight in my mind yeah. what he was actually saying. And essentially he was saying they both, they're, stu they're studying at college and they both do 31 hours outside of college to study. And I think Tim, it's like, that's all you know about him. Whereas with Tom, you know, he does that and he's got, I don't know, a girlfriend and a hobby and a, you know, whatever. And the dilution effect, as you say, subconsciously somewhere must make us go, well, how has he got time to do that and do the 31 hours of study? You know, so he can't he, he can't be studying as hard or he must be distracted yeah. or you make these assumptions, don't you? Yeah, Based on I guess so. But he really sold it to me with the example of the side effects um, listed for drugs. And that's yeah. where it, the, the dinner set was the light bulb moment. The Tim and Tom was me going, oh, I don't know. And then the one where he talks about the the listing of side effects for drugs was like, yeah, I've got it. He used the example of um, this list of side effects where it, it included, for example, heart attack and stroke. But right at the end, they just put itchy feet. <laughs> and if, if they'd have just said uh, the main important side effects are this, is you could die, it might have had more of an impact, a negative impact, obviously, yes, than, than yeah. diluting it with the extra information. And this is obviously what they're doing. They don't want people to think, oh, my word, this drug could give me a heart attack or a stroke. Oh, it could give me itchy feet. That's not a bother. Yeah, it's that filter bit. 
and I think you know where does this where does this fit into business? Well, it, you know, it fits into sometimes you're arguing your corner. Maybe at work you're trying to get um, an argument across. Uh, maybe you're trying to convince a, a, a customer that you know your widget is the best widget. And of course, we've all been in situations where you're with somebody and they're perhaps doing a pitch or doing a presentation and they just keep on and you feel like saying, look, just stop now. You've said it's the best. It starts to sound almost like you're apologizing for it. Don't keep telling me the 20 features. Just tell me why it's the best and then shut up. It doesn't add. He says, if you keep it brief and succinct, then that's a strong argument. The more you say, then it kind of averages out over all of these different things that you said and, and they each lose their weight. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the phrases I picked up is that quality trumps quantity in an argument. So stick to the strong arguments. So powerful, that message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did um, I did then, as I said, I started looking around. I wanted to <laughs> You find went down a, a rabbit hole, Heather. I went down a blooming big rabbit hole. So I found, I found a, a paper about it. So it's a little bit um, over the top. However... Um, essentially, it's something that I think I've mentioned before. It's about persuading people to only use their towels once in the hotel, um, to use their towels more than once in a hotel. Uh, so, you know, nowadays they say, if you want fresh towels, put your towels in the bath. But otherwise, we'll put your, we'll rehang your towels and you can use them for another day. And there's a whole load of experiments that were done. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's called descriptive norms and hotel guests towel reuse behavior. I will oh, yeah. put a link to it because <laughs> if anybody wants to read it, but it went to the point where they actually, they trialed some different things and then they ran different, different cards on each floor of a five floor hotel. And then they rotated them so that they'd got a control. So whatever they were using on the fifth floor, the next week they would use on the fourth floor and then they looked at the data and the impact that the things had and where the signs were placed and all of these subtle mm. things that were influ influencing and the message that was written. And basically the one that wins is that, you know, most people want to save the planet, do you? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, to the um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting, really interesting. Talking of which, um, are we diluting this message now? <laughs> yes, we probably are. We probably are. <laughs> so our profile this week, we do this, don't we? We were reviewing a book last week by a lady called Kim Scott. And as Tracy said at, at, um, at the, in the intro, she her biog was so interesting that we thought, well, we should we should research this lady because she'd set up all sorts of businesses, operated at a really high level. So her name's Kim Scott, and we decided to revisit her story and see what we could find out about her. Now, I have to say, I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. And her bio in, on her website, which is where we, we got this thing about her managing a paediatric clinic and starting a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. Yeah. I wasn't able to find out anything more about that. No, it's like she's had the internet cleansed of those episodes. 
Yes, we've seen that with other people that we actually never went on to actually talk about. We thought, oh, these will be a great one. There'll be loads of stuff. And there was nothing. No. Um, but yeah, the, the bits that we wanted to really drill down on, nothing, nothing there at all. And and it is a bit representative of the people we've profiled who've written books because everything that we could find on the internet, well, certainly that I could find, was yeah. related to her books, Radical Candor, and the other one called Just Work. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted more about the person rather than the theory because we'd done loads of the theory. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for those who who weren't who haven't listened to last week's podcast, she um, she was a member of the faculty at Apple University. Um, she led AdSense, YouTube, and double double click teams at Google. Um, and then there's she was the CEO coach at Dropbox and Twitter. You know, she's she's really time served in some of these high tech organizations. And that is really, really interesting. And this whole radical candor thing, you know, the basic sort of um, the premise is basically, you know, say it like it is and people will thank you for it. Uh, and if you don't give them the opportunity um, to know where they're falling down, then they don't have the opportunity to improve. There's a little bit of that. But, yeah, I, w I was like, how does somebody who's worked in this area manage a paediatric clinic in Kosovo I thought it was going to be loads of really interesting information about that there wasn't no and the diamond cutting factory in Moscow come on there's going to be loads of stories about yeah. that yeah she did, the, the radical candor thing is is heavily reviewed and heavily profiled and she talks um on the radical candor website about how it all started um and and you know and that that's quite interesting. I watched a couple of interviews, uh, listened to a podcast interview, and it's all around the same. It's all around the same kind of thing. But when you go to her website, you find out that the nearest I got to uh, an opportunity to find out anything about some of the more unusual things that she did uh, has done in her career is that she's written um, a couple of novels. Um, where uh, there's a book called The Measurement Problem. She draws on her own experience in Russia following the fall of the Berlin Wall, where she started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. Oh, so there is reference to it elsewhere, yeah. But it's it's in a novel, and I don't know to what extent she talks about the diamond cutting. She talks about being in the Soviet Union, um, and, you know, being a, an expat. Um, so... You know, maybe there's something in there. I would uh, say that doing business in Russia is interesting. I, I worked for a company that um, um, did did deal. I had an office in Moscow. It, yeah, interesting in inverted commas would be my comment. <laughs> yeah, I remember once um, arranging to fly one of my colleagues to Russia. Um, he was an architect. He is an architect, and to get a visa to go to Russia, you, you, you basically, I mean, it was bad enough going to, um, to Dubai to talk about setting up business where you needed a sponsor and things, but you literally needed to say where you were going, who you were going to be with, how long you were going to be there for. You jumped through so many hoops. And if you, if you, if you did anything wrong, you know, I was worried about him getting impound, compound, impounded, impounded. Um, <laughs> because, 
I was so petrified that the paperwork wouldn't be right. And we, in the end, we paid somebody in London to review the paperwork to make sure that we uh, had got it all right. So it would be an interesting story, but she's done it as a novel. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, and inspired by, it doesn't necessarily mean there's, you know, it, it's biographical at all, does it? So. No, no. I found, uh, read an article that I thought was really interesting, but it was less about uh, Kim herself and more about her interaction with Sheryl Sandberg. Um, and, and she just talks in this article, um, where did I get it from? Um, oh, it's an excerpt from her book, actually, but I, I did find it on um, entrepreneur.com. So um, this was from a few years ago. Um, and she basically explains how Sheryl Sandberg very expertly gave her some criticism um and she it wasn't what <laughs> we used to call a shit sandwich she wasn't right. just giving her good stuff then the bad stuff then some good stuff she did mm-hmm. actually start off with positive um feedback but then was very clear about the thing that she needed to improve but didn't just tell her what was wrong she gave her advice on how to improve it and assistance in how to improve it and i think that um is what inspired some of the writing in the book and obviously her experiences with the likes of Cheryl Sandberg has enabled her to develop um, radical candor as a as a philosophy even yeah it's certainly when you when you do google her you find lots of videos of her talking about different scenarios and stories, which is great, but they are all generally going back to this radical candor thing and, yeah. and how it grew and, and what it looks like in the workplace and, you know, what light bulb moments she's had. But uh, yeah. I mean, clearly an interesting lady. Just, yeah, I'd like to know more. So yeah. if Kim Scott ends up listening to this, I'd just like to know what sort of person she is. <laughs> yeah, so we we like radical candor. Yeah, we like we enjoyed reading about it, and you know the website's good. Um, Kim Scott's own website seems to be a little out of date. I think the blog has per- perhaps moved to radical candor website, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's got loads of stuff. But yeah, when when you're trying to get to the person, it, it can be a bit frustrating. So maybe. Maybe we could just get a little bit of an insight into what your likes and dislikes are. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could just stalk her on um, on LinkedIn like we do with Ernesto Soroli and see see what we can find out. <laughs> <laughs> find out where they're giving talks and just turn up. <laughs> turn up, yeah. <laughs> but what we will do is put links to all of the things that we've talked about this week on our website, which is the business.community. Uh, and if you want to go down a rabbit hole, then um, I'll add in a few extra links um, so that you can uh, read that paper that uh, that I mentioned about the towels in the hotels. That's all we've got time for this week on the business community. If you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast, you can find out about all the things that we've talked about over the years at our website, which is thebusiness.community. We do hope you'll join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Bye.